I encourage you to take out your Bible. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, and there are some uh, notes in the program. We encourage you to uh, take that out if you'd like and fill in these blanks so you remember, remember what we talk about even more as we go through God's Word. You know, the apostles and Peter, they truly believed, if you read through the New Testament carefully, they truly believed that Jesus was going to return in their lifetime. And uh, Jesus, before he left, said to remind us three things, that we're to wait. We're to wait with anticipation, with urgency, with hope that he is going to return. Jesus said we need to occupy. It means to use our spiritual gifts to continue to do the work that he wants us to do. But he also wants us to pray, to pray, to pray to him, to do the work and the Holy Spirit work through us in this life here on earth. And that's what we need to be doing as believers. And Peter talks about the false teachers today who mocked that, who didn't believe that, who wanted to reject that. Do you know the early believers, when they would gather together, the first known creed is found in 1 Corinthians 15. But another thing that was a very big part of the early church was when they left one another, they would often say Maranatha, which in the Greek means even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And so we think about that, Maranatha. We look forward, we're 2,000 years or so after the ascension of Christ, and we're still looking forward to his return. For those believers, the second advent of Christ was the church's blessed hope in Titus 2, the utmost longing in Romans 8, the great climax, the crescendo of history in Matthew chapter 25. In Ephesians 4, it is described as the time of redemption when he returns. The judgment of God's enemies in 1 Thessalonians 2. The beginning of Jesus' rule and reign on earth for a thousand years. It's just laid out in the book of Revelation. Well, now we look at Peter's writings concerning Christ's return. And Peter is going to show us in his writings today about people who are ignorant, but sad to say willfully ignorant, to their own demise and the destruction of many who will follow them. Will Rogers, that vaudeville performer, said everybody is ignorant only on different subjects. And that's true. There's been studies done that if you want to be an expert at something, you have to spend 10,000 hours at that thing to become an expert. We can't be experts in all kinds of things. But when we do receive knowledge, we need to act on that knowledge and not willfully push it aside. Peter has shared in chapter 1 the power of the divine nature to transform us. And that we need to be reminded and to stay in that truth. Chapter 2 brought us the character and the content of these false teachers. Chapter 3 is dealing directly with the false teaching of Peter's day. The skepticism, the dismissal of the return of Christ. Peter affirms Christ's coming earlier in his book. It says in 2 Peter 1.16, he says, For we do not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were witnesses of his majesty. Jesus, James and John were at the transfiguration and they saw the glorified Christ for a short amount of time in all of his majesty and all of his splendor. Just like those early church leaders and Christ followers, we need to live in urgent anticipation of Christ's coming in the clouds to rapture those who are alive at the time that he returns in the clouds, at the time he's set for those who are alive and remain and those who are dead in Christ. 
And that ushers in basically the end of the church age. And we should live as each day will be our last day because truly one day when we wake up, it will be our last day. That's not a yogi bearism, okay? We are going to wake up one day and it will truly be our last day. I like Matt Marr's song, Hold Us Together. He said, this is the first day of the rest of your life. And think about it. We can't do anything about the past. We have now and what's going to happen in the future. So take your Bible, turn over to 2 Peter 3 for our scripture reading. Verses 1 through 7. 2 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7. Peter says here, now this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Verse 3, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Verse seven, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word today. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we commit this scripture into your hands and pray that you would help us and help me to communicate it clearly, help, to, help it to be your words. And Lord, we just thank you for your Holy Spirit. But Lord, you know, as you search the hearts of the people in this room, what their needs are today. And we pray that the word of God will have its work in our hearts and our minds. And Lord, as we uh, uh, take this time, may you be glorified in all that's said and done. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So let's look first of all in your outline, the power of God's word through prophecy. The power of God's word through prophecy. Peter says, first of all, stir up your mind. Stir up your mind. Let's repeat verse one here. You can see it on the screen. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. And both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Peter's referring most likely to 1 Peter when he says this is his second letter. He's speaking to an audience of believers who've been scattered out of Jerusalem. They're facing extreme persecution. We again see Peter's pastoral heart in this verse by the use of the word beloved. He had love and compassion and care for these people who are following Jesus and facing extreme difficulties. He's saying, wake up from your complacency. Wake up, Jesus is coming soon. There are times each of us needs a good wake-up call spiritually. I don't know about you, but it's easy sometimes to get complacent, to become apathetic. We come to church week after week. We get used to the way that we worship. We hear the gospel many, many times after we've made that decision for Christ. It's like we need some cold water splashed on our soul to remind us of why we do what we do and the importance of obeying and following Christ. Always remember as you read God's word that he sacrificed so much to give us his word, that he did a lot of amazing things to preserve his word 
through the centuries so that many people today, including us, have a copy of God's word in their language so we can hear the very words of God. So we need to wake up. In Romans 13, Paul said it this way, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul's telling the church to wake up, be ready for Jesus' return. There was once a time, people in England, they were in the 18th century, were working. Many rural people had moved into the cities and manufacturing was the big thing. And people lived in small houses near where they worked. And so they created a vocation called the knocker-upper. You see, they didn't have very many alarm clocks. They were expensive and unreliable anyway. So at the crack of dawn, this paid person, the knocker-upper, would come and knock on windows and wake the manufacturing people up to get them ready for work. It was said, in fact, sometimes they would knock on the window and say, your shift has been moved and it's going to start in a few minutes. You better get ready. And the danger was, as one author said, life for the employed was forever balanced on a knife edge. Being late for work in those times could mean instant dismissal and a speedy spiral for those workers and their families into poverty, homelessness, and destitution. Well, the job of the knocker-upper went obsolete about 100 years after it was invented because alarm clocks became more affordable and more reliable and working conditions improved. We need to have that attitude of the knocker-upper to wake ourselves up. Peter says, stir up your sincere mind sincere mind. And we've used this illustration dozens of times. Some of you could come up and share it, but you've heard it, but it's used here. It means without wax. It literally means son hyphen judged. In other words, the merchants, they would buy this ceramic, this poverty, this pot pottery, and they would um, bring it in and they would inspect it. And if they found a crack or a weakness in it, they would put wax over it and then they would paint over the wax. And so what you would do is if you were going to the market and you were going to buy this piece of uh, pottery, you would take it and you would judge it by the sun. You would pick it up and you would look at it through the light of the sun and let the light filter through. And if there were imperfections, they would show up. Peter is saying here, live without wax. Live as sun judged, S-O-N judged. Have sincere, honest, authentic, pure minds. Stir up your mind. Be remembering what was taught earlier in this letter and the previous letter. The next thing we see is see the past fulfillment of God's predictions. He's saying, see how God has worked in the past. And that's a picture of what he's going to do in the future because every prediction, every promise up to this point that he has given has come true. See the past fulfillment of God's predictions. Look at verse 2 of 2 Peter 3 that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Predictions of the holy apostles, both the Old Testament and New Testament, speak extensively of Christ's return. 
From Isaiah to Malachi, there are many predictions of Jesus coming not once, as we celebrate in Christmas, and not to be a downer maybe for some, but we're 77 days away from Christmas. So we think about that first Advent, November 27th, we begin our Advent season as Austin and I were preparing this week. And we spend a lot of time thinking about that first Advent, but it also talks about in the Old Testament his second coming. There'll be a time of great judgment on all people who've ever lived at the end of the 1,000-year reign of Christ. A phrase that's often used of that day of judgment in the Bible is the day of the Lord. You'll see that phrase used in many places. And it will be a time that all will stand before God and final uh, separation. He will separate the sheep from the goats at the great white throne judgment. That will be based on the book of life being opened and see who the true followers of Christ are. And those that rejected Christ or those who did not uh, reject or had a head knowledge but not a willful heart-surrendered relationship with Christ will be separated and cast into the lake of fire. Another phrase you'll see in the Bible is the day of God. This is what we'll describe next in two weeks after Celebrate Recovery next Sunday. Uh, two weeks from now, we'll talk about how God sets up the new heavens and the new earth. And God will reign in perfection over all the earth and its inhabitants. And then there's the day of Christ, and this refers to the rapture of the church. And I know we may not all agree uh, when Jesus will return in the clouds to take those who are alive and well on planet earth at that time up into heaven. I tend to believe it's before the tribulation and those who are dead in Christ will also be raised. That's the day of Christ. When we'll meet them together in the clouds, we'll go to the judgment seat of Christ and we'll enjoy gathering around the marriage supper of the lamb to be physically joined with Christ as the bride and the bridegroom. It says here in verse two, the commands of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. In the New Testament, from Matthew to Revelation, the writers all speak of Jesus' return except for two books. I just learned this this week. Only two books in the New Testament do not speak about the return of Christ. That's Philemon and 3 John. There's 260 chapters in the New Testament, and there are 300 instances referring to Christ's second coming in those chapters. So we see the importance of being ready for Christ to come in the clouds, to transform us instantly, and to be ushered into heaven, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, in the twinkling of an eye. Do you know what the twinkling of an eye is when you blink? General Electric did a study, and that is 1 63rd of a second. Can you imagine? You'll be on planet Earth if you're alive. When Jesus comes in the clouds, you blink, and the next thing you know, you will be in heaven, transformed with a new body to be with him. So the application is this, the time to be urgent and intentional about sharing Christ and his gospel is now, is now, as we anticipate the hope of his return. The second thing we see today is the provocation of the mocker. The provocation of the mocker, the mockers want to continue in their sin. It says in 2 Peter 3, 3, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. Notice what he says there, knowing this first of all. This isn't a sequential statement. This isn't a chronological time statement. This is saying of utmost importance, a point of emphasis. Scoffers and mockers are false teachers who deny the deity of Christ, 
and deny that he will return physically back to planet Earth. These false teachers take lightly what ought to be taken very seriously. The last days are the days between Christ's first advent until his second advent after the tribulation period. Think of it, in Noah's day, those folks had 120 years of warning about impending judgment. And yet, only eight people believed that God was going to do that and got onto the ark. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah never thought the judgment of fire and brimstone would ever destroy them and their cities. People today go about their lives as if everything will forever continue on as they've always gone on, not believing or not knowing that Christ could return at any time or that they will face a judgment for what they did with Christ immediately after they die. A famous former chief rabbi of Great Britain, Jonathan Sachs, said this about the counterintuitive phenomena of Jewish history, a phenomena that applies to Christians as well. He said, when it was hard to be a Jew, people stayed Jewish. When it was easy to be a Jew, people stopped being Jewish. Globally, this is a major Jewish problem at our time. I would say the same for us as believers who live in countries where we have all the wealth and resources and the grace to have access to all of the things that we do here. And yet, with very little persecution, it's hard for us to stay on course. We become complacent and apathetic very easily. Well, these false teachers, these scoffers of Christ's return are motivated to mock because they want to continue in their sin. In 2 Peter 2.10, Peter says, and especially those false teachers who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. In verse 18 of 2 Peter 2, he says, for speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. You see that when you're confronted by the word of God, you either change your lifestyle by surrendering to God and let the Spirit fill your life, or you change the Word of God to fit your agenda and lifestyle, and that's exactly what false teachers do. As committed followers of Christ, we have to adjust and adapt our lives to the Word of God, not change the Word of God to justify our lifestyle choices and behaviors that go contrary to God's Word. As I read in one of my devotions this morning, the devotion person said this. He said, we don't read the Bible. The Bible reads us. Remember Hebrews 4.12 says that it cuts to the marrow, to the heart, that it uh, discerning the thoughts and intentions of our heart. So we let the word of God read us and see how we match up to the word of God. These false teachers, they were arrogant and snobby. They had a disdain for the coming judgment of God. And Peter wants his readers not to doubt the return of Christ, no matter what the false teachers are saying. He's saying the real reason false teachers want to deny that Christ will return is that the mockers do not want to face the consequences of their sin. They don't want to face the consequences of their sin if they deny it. If they say it's not reality, well, then maybe it won't happen. Look at verse 4 of 2 Peter 3. The false teachers will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They're saying, where is the promise of his coming? He's not really going to come. If he was going to come, he would have come by now. 
He must be asleep. He must be tied up with other things. They mock him. And they say, the fathers, the fathers, most likely they're referencing the patriarchs of Judaism, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Peter shares their argument from the teaching, and this teaching here is called uniformitarianism. And I should have put this definition up there, but I will read it to you anyway. Uniformitarianism is the cosmic process of knowing that the present and the future can be understood on the sole basis of how the cosmos operated in the past. In other words, how things have gone, it's going to continue on the same way. The past tells us how the future will go with no exception to it. They believe the universe is eternal. This is a deist thought. Deism is believing that a God created the world and then became impersonal. He took his hands off. Laissez-faire, he let the world run its course. David Hume came up with naturalism, a philosopher. He's the example of no miracles, no supernatural. The Jefferson Bible, Thomas Jefferson took a pair of scissors and cut out all the miracles and the supernatural and created his own Bible. This is what the picture of uniformitarianism is. They do not believe God will intervene into the world of science because it's a closed system. There's no need for divine intervention and miracles, and every unusual event that occurs in the world can be or will be explained by science. Uniformitarianism rose in popularity in the 19th century due to a man called Charles Lyell. He was a British lawyer and a geologist. He wrote a famous book called The Principles of Geology. It's interesting that as Charles Darwin was developing his uh, theory of natural selection and then eventually the theory of evolution came out of that, Charles Darwin always took a copy of Lyell's book with him as he made his trips on exploration to research his theory. It's purported that, and it's interesting because in modern times, science is moving away from uniformitarianism because an unexplainable catastrophic event happened as geologists are seeing, and that is the worldwide flood that they cannot explain. So as Christ followers, we believe the universe is open system. There is uniformity to it. We know the meteorologist can tell us when the sun's gonna rise, when it's gonna set. We see the tides come in and out, those can be predicted. But we see that also that God is holding all things together. But God is able to intervene and interject himself and bring things into the world that can only be explained supernaturally. Here's one commentator on this verse. He said, anthropocentric hedonism, those are two big words, aren't they? Man-centered pleasure-seeking always mocks at the idea of ultimate standard and a final division between saved and lost. For men who live in the world of the relative truth, the claim that the relative will be ended by the absolute is nothing short of ludicrous. For men who nourish a belief in human self-determination and perfectibility, the very idea that we are accountable and dependent is a bitter pill to swallow. No wonder they mocked. And that's where we live today. Bertrand Russell, who is a famous atheist, he was the Voltaire of Cambridge, where he was educated. He was an amazing debater. He hardly ever lost. And so this man who thought of himself as a logic machine, who is a devout atheist, said this, the root of the whole thing is loneliness. I have a kind of physical loneliness which almost anybody can more or less relieve, but which would be fully relieved by a wife and children. 
Beyond that, I have a very internal and terrible spiritual loneliness. I've dreamed of a combination of spiritual and physical companionship. And if I have the good fortune to find it, I could have become something better than I shall ever be. As an atheist, he had a longing for the spiritual vacuum that was in his life to be fulfilled. Life without Christ is eternally a lonely experience. So our application is this. Pay no attention to those who mock Christ's return. Pay no attention to those who mock Christ's return. And then our last point this morning talks about the power of God's word through the ages. The power of God's word through the ages. Look at verse 5 of 2 Peter 3. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. The world came into existence by God's word. Jesus was, was spoken of Jesus in John 1.1. 1, 1, in the beginning, the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It went on to say there in John 1 that he was there present at creation. The Holy Spirit hovered over the waters. The Trinity was all involved, but it was the very words of God that created the world. Peter responds to the scoffer's mockery by arguing about how God worked in the past and how God continues to work. He works in different economies of time with men in different ways. And we see God's physical wrath and judgment in the Old Testament by the destruction of those who disobeyed him. These false teachers willfully ignored the evidences we see throughout the history of God's working. The first example Peter states here is the creation of the world in Genesis 1 and 2. It says there that God created the heavens and the earth. That word created in the Hebrew is ex nihilo, which means from, some, from nothing came something. From nothing came something. Now, some of us, and Mike Fenley's a good example, he can take pieces of scrap metal and use things and put things together and make them useful. But what if we had absolutely nothing and we had to make something? God did that when he spoke this world into existence. And so in Psalm 33:9 it says for God spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. 9 times in Genesis 1 we see God speaking things into existence. In the creation story the heavens existed on day 2 of creation, which Peter's talking about here. It says that on day 3 the earth was formed out of the water. You see, back in the Garden of Eden, before sin and before Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, there was a vapor canopy that surrounded the planet. And it was a way to protect them from sun's rays, and that could be why people live longer at that time, over time. But when we get to later on in Genesis, we'll see what happened. But there was a paradise feel about this place with that vapor canopy and then waters underneath Underneath the terrain, there were seas, there were reservoirs, there were lakes. And we see all that. And in Hebrews 1.3, it says that God not only created it, but he keeps it all together. In Hebrews 1.3, at the end there, he says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He holds it all together. At any moment, he could send the atoms fleeing in different directions and everything would disintegrate. 
But despite the evidence, these false teachers willfully deny God's working and the evidence of his working in the world around us. A verse we've looked at a number of times in this study in Romans 1.20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says about the wisdom of the world. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In verse 21 of 1 Corinthians, he says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And then he says in verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. There are a lot of wise people in this world. They brought a lot of inventions and discoveries and all kinds of things. And that's good. That wisdom, as long as it flows and goes along with the word of God, is acceptable. But there's a difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom, as James 3 talks about. And I thought it was interesting One of the people I read this week said this, the wisdom of God has ordained a way for the love of God to deliver us us from the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. Let me explain that again as we think of our salvation. The wisdom of God has ordained a way for the love of God to deliver us from the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. That is salvation. That is godly wisdom. We see next that the world was destroyed in the past by God's word. The world was destroyed in the past by God's word. Look at verse six. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. God used how he had created the upper and the lower waters to bring the worldwide flood that destroyed every human being and animals outside of the ark. Deluged is a Greek word where we get our word cataclysmic or catastrophic. The story goes on in Genesis concerning the worldwide flood, that this vapor canopy was opened up, that the lower waters came up from the ground, that it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And you see the total destruction of all living things on the surface of the planet. The earth was saved, but the judgment was focused on the sinful people who were unwilling to repent from their sins and turn to God. Now, skeptics say that the flood recorded in Genesis could not have been a worldwide flood. There just wasn't enough water to cover the entire earth. Well, think about this. Realize that three-fourths of the earth is currently made up of water. Add to that the amount of water from the upper vapor canopy and the lower waters, along with the rain for 40 days and nights, it's not hard to believe or accept that the flood was a worldwide flood phenomenon. Fellow human beings, be reminded that there is a God and we are not it. And if we try to fit God into a box to make him a superhuman expression of mankind and make him fit in our logic, then he ceases to be a God that I want to serve. He's too small of a God. God is the sovereign ruler of the universe that he created. In Psalm 115.3, it says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So one takeaway here is that Peter, we think is probably a seven-day literal creationist and a believer in the worldwide flood. 
We see also here our last point that the world will face destruction at Christ's second advent. Christ's second advent. And we always need to be mindful in our Christmas season when we sing Joy to the World, that's really a song that talks about his second coming. Some of those songs, as we reflect on those this season, we need to be reflective of his soon and possibly sudden return. In 2 Peter 3, 7, it says, But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. God is preserving this heaven and earth we live in until a day reserved to come and bring judgment. Many of us, we go on trips from time to time. We'll set up reservations. If we go with a tour group, we have specific information of where we need to be at certain times after we pay our money to be able to enjoy the trip. Some of us have reservations for dinner on special occasions. Some of us during this Christmas season coming up will buy things and maybe put it on layaway and pay for it and, and have a day that you're going to pay it off so you can give it out at Christmas time. Reservations. Be sure of this. Judgment day is coming. That's what Peter is saying. And just as Arnold Schwarzenegger said in the Terminator, I will be back, God knows the day and the, movement and the moment of a swift and powerful judgment. He says it's stored up for fire, the earth is. We're going to talk more about this next time, but remember God's promise of the rainbow. He said he would not destroy the world again by water, but Peter is stating here that judgment will come by fire. Do you realize in the New Testament, as far as I can tell, this is the only place we see these words in the Bible that it's stored up to be destroyed by fire and judgment. Did you know that some scientists believe that the inner core of the earth is made up of molten rocks and they estimate it's 12,400 degrees Fahrenheit down there. But then there's 10 miles of crust between us humans and that inferno in the center of the earth. Do you realize that the entire creation of God is made up of atoms and exists in atomic structures? We're all living with a potential of nuclear explosion all around us if God were to so choose. So the application here is this, that we need to trust God's timing for his sudden return. Trust God's timing for his sudden return. We close with a big question to end this message. Will you listen to God's voice of truth or will you listen to the world's voices that mock God and his soon return? Who are you going to believe? Who will you listen to? If you're a true follower of Christ, the great and fantastic news is that you and I, we're not going to face the same judgment of any kind that those who deny or reject Christ. These false teachers will lead themselves and others to horrendous destruction, but we will be in heaven with Christ and then return to rule and reign with him here forever on planet earth. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 gives us this great promise. He said, for God has not destined you and I, Christ followers, for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the hope that we need to live in. On March 11th, 1942, a month before Bataan fell during World War II, President Franklin Roosevelt, knowing that the American troops would soon be forced to succumb, ordered General Douglas MacArthur to leave the last stronghold at the island of Corregidor. The order surely fell on the 
proud and loyal MacArthur all the more heavily because he knew that he had acted quickly enough in the wake of Pearl Harbor. It had led to devastating losses that had crippled their defenses. And what might have been if he had reacted quicker, how many of his men's lives might he have spared was a burden that was on his heart. MacArthur and his family rode by boat to an airstrip 560 miles away. They encountered rough waters and Japanese gunfire. And as the general flew away from what may have been the greatest loss in American history, knowing in his heart the brave men that would be left behind and what they would suffer, he resolved at that airport in the Philippines to say, I shall return, a promise he would repeat over and over again. And when his plane touched down in Melbourne, Australia, he got out and made this now famous speech. He said, when I landed on your soil, I said to the people of the Philippines from where I came, I shall return. Tonight, I repeat those words, I shall return. Nothing is more certain than the ultimate reconquest and liberation from the enemy of those and adjacent lands. Douglas MacArthur did return two and a half years later on October 20th, 1944. This month marks 78 years since he landed on the shore of Leyte in the Philippines with 280,000 soldiers under his command to recapture and finally liberate the Philippines, a story that reverberates with an even deeper and more epic victory. Jesus said this, if I go, I will surely come again. Let's bow for prayer. And as we think of that truth, as we think of people around us going on as if this may never happen, mocking or apathetic, may we be filled with what Jesus taught, that we are to wait in anticipation and urgency to continue carrying on his work and to pray until he comes. Father in heaven, help us, Lord, today to see the urgency of your return, to see lost souls all around us who are dying and going to hell. As I prayed this morning, as I pray almost every Sunday morning as I drive the 16 miles into church, I pray for those houses that I pass of people wondering if they will be going to church today if they know Christ as Savior. May we have a burden for the lost. May we share the message of hope with them. But Lord, help us, as 1 John 3 says, that we are to live pure lives, holy lives, in view of your return, so that we can honor and glorify you through all that we do, and to welcome in those words that we may hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. To this end, we pray today, we pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen.